Pastor Matt. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again. Betty and I have been on the road the last week, and so it's great to be back with you all this morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning at verse 22. Everyone spoke well of Jesus and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not, to, was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of God. Pastor Eric. Thanks, Craig. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Calvary. We have heard this story of where Jesus, he's, they say they're going to throw him off a cliff for this. And so we have to remember, what did, he, what did he say? What did he do? What did he say last week? And he had quoted these words from Isaiah 61, these words of, of good news to the poor, for, for freeing those who are oppressed, for sight to the blind, the favorable year of the Lord has come. It made me think of uh, when I was in college, I was, I was in a band. My wife's getting scared. Okay, I was in this band for a while. And uh, it was like not a really good band. In fact, a band that never really played at any shows. But we jammed and we would do stuff. I'd play some guitar and, and sing. We wrote a song based on Isaiah 61. And it was kind of like a, it's like a metal versus like Black Crows kind of band. And so it just had this like, uh, it was just like, today's the day of vengeance of our God. Today's the day to comfort those who mourn. You know, and it was like this kind of like intense, like <laughs> metal song. Uh, my wife said, don't sing it. Don't sing it. But I was like, I want to sing a little bit. You know, and anyway. But then it would go into those promises of bind up the brokenhearted, broken Proclaim freedom for the captives. Release the prisoners from the darkness. Proclaim the year of the Lord. So these amazing words. Now, if I had fully sang the song, I think you would have wanted to do to me what the crowd did to Jesus and try to throw him off a cliff, or at least my kids would. So um, I'm still scared of like the screen grabs and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but those are powerful words these radical words of, of Jesus in that synagogue from Isaiah, these are radical words that demand a radical response. I'm, I'm at some level at least proud of the Nazarenes that they reacted strongly. It's like these words actually demand that you would kill this person or you would bow down and worship him. It demands one or the other. They don't, they aren't words that, that result in sort of, eh, whatever, you know, meh. 
These are words of saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I will bring these radical promises of liberation from the oppression that you are under, the chains of sin and death. I will shatter and break them, Jesus says. And so at least their response is one of the proper ones, even though it's not the best one. And so we're going to look into this passage even more today because there were some reasons why they reacted this way that, that weren't just because they didn't think he was God. They had sort of created what I would call a Lord of me, Jesus, Lord of me. And when I say that, what I mean, it's almost, it's Lord by me, Lord for me. They've, they've built a, or carved or molded a little statue of an idol in calling it Jesus and saying, Jesus, do what I want, be what I want, be what I've made you to be, rather than the Lord of we and the Lord of, of all things. And so let's, let's keep digging into this passage because like these people in Nazareth, we expect Jesus to be what we want him to be. This ver that first verse here in this story, right after he says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. It says, everyone spoke well of him, and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? You see, Jesus was nothing like what anyone expected the Messiah to be, especially these people in Nazareth. They're like, this guy? You know, how can it be this guy? It's like, I, I kind of think like, is it Josh Simpson's the Messiah? Like what? Like he grew up here. He works here. What are you talking about? Like he hangs out with our middle schoolers. He's awesome. He's really great. But like Messiah? Like what are you talking about? That's like the way that you have to get your head into this passage. And there are people that live in this small town. I want to show you a little bit about Nazareth. This is a picture of this place they call Mount Precipice. And this is overlooking the, the cliff or the, the hillside in that area where they think Jesus was likely, where they tried to throw him off. And uh, this might have even included like them wanting to stone him or kill him in some way and then shove him off this cliff. Uh, there's actually a big bustling kind of modern city near, right nearby this. Um, it's, not like a, it's not like a great place with all sorts of the ancient ruins. There's a big church and stuff like that there in this sort of modern Arab town actually in the middle of Israel. But I want to show you another picture of, like a, of another Galilean uh, village ruins. This is a little town called Chorazin, which is a biblical city. But it gives you a little bit of a sense of kind of the closeness. When you look at these, these um, well, I like when you look at the screen, it's like, look, I'm like touching it. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but you, uh, you've got these little rectangles here in the foreground of this picture, and these are houses, okay? So this is like what the size of people's houses would be, and it's how close they would be to one another. And they would go up from there a little bit, right? But then that courtyard in the middle area is like where you'd have tradesmen or craftsmen, and people have set, set little shops and stuff in that central area. And life was lived lived in close proximity to one another in this time. And these aren't huge cities. These are relatively small villages. So you have to get a sense, like, these are people in this small town living very close to each other. Life's difficult. You got to, like, survive. And community was very, very, very important to them. And so Jesus, growing up in this place, Nazareth, which kind of like a blue-collar town, you'd think of it. It was nearby this other town called Zippori, 
which was a, a bigger Roman city that was being built in the first century, being built up in that reign of the Roman Empire. And Jesus was likely going with his dad over to Zippori and doing stonemason work. It's like you can still go there and see these like amazing like mosaics and you can see that tile work and stonemason work that was happening in that area of the world. So that's like where Jesus is growing up in this town. And these people then hear that and they're just like, what? This guy? Like seriously? Because even Nazareth, like the way Nathaniel responds when his friends say, hey, come and see Jesus. And he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And the whole Galilean region was kind of looked down on, but even Galileans looked down on Nazareth. And so you've got this whole town of people that sort of feel smaller than everybody else. And then they're looking down on Jesus and just saying like, no way, this can't be the guy. It's not possible. It is not at all what you would have expected the Messiah to be like. And so then in this little spot, it says, he says these, these radical words. And then it says the people spoke well of him. Okay, it spoke well of him and it talks about his words of grace. Now, it's interesting because some of the way some of these, these uh, phrases can be interpreted, you've got like a couple options of way that you interpret this Greek. It could be they spoke well of him like they spoke good things about him, but it also can just be sort of like they bore witness about him. They just spoke about him. And then these words of grace could be like, oh, he's, he's such a good, eloquent speaker, or it could just be, that's the topic he spoke about. He spoke about grace. Now, part of the problem these people have with Jesus is he talks about grace for everyone, okay? Not just Nazareth, not just Israel, not just the chosen people of God. So you've got a whole group of people that are either A, confused, like what in the world is happening? They're angry and they don't like what they're hearing at some level. But what, as, this, as this little story progresses, they don't like it more and more and more as it goes along. Because the next thing they ask for him to do then is like, all right, well, fine, prove it to us. Prove it to us, Jesus. And we often want that as well. But we just look again here at verses 23 and 24. So they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Then 23 says, then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And so Jesus knows right off the bat that what they want is show us a sign, prove it, show us who you are. If you really, like, if you really are this Messiah or you really can grant this stuff, show us Miracles prove it. And he, he knows they want this. And it's interesting because Jesus goes around actually doing this for people. And even the main reason, I think, why he does miracles is to prove who he is, to show who he is to people. But, but I, don't, I don't think it's like up to them to be like, you have to prove it to me. You know, I, Jesus, you better show me who you are. This is my choice. And and I, I, I'm thinking about this a little bit because I've been sort of struggling with a little bit of something like this, and maybe you, you do as well. But I've been 
really excited about the way that God has been moving and working in our church lately. I feel like God has been moving in people's lives outside of this room and some awesome stories of lives changed and people really like people that you would never have thought would have received Christ do, just radical change in people, stories of healing and God coming through in, in really cool ways in the way that we hope for. And so we've seen some of that. And we've seen even here in this room of people coming forward and being on their knees before God and receiving prayer and being prayed over and in tears and just surrendering our lives to God. And it's been so awesome. And then I start to get a little bit like, okay, God, like, do that again though, right? Like, you know, keep going. And I want that. And it's just like, but sometimes I think the way I can think about it is like, well, if you don't do it again this week, maybe I'm going to start doubting, right? Or maybe I won't really believe that you can if you don't show me the, the cool stuff again, God, right? Like, I don't know if you ever kind of feel this way or you, you have these moments in your own life where you've seen God work in you or transform you in some way, but maybe a couple years have gone by and you're you kind of forget that one time and you want like you, you want it again, but maybe your heart in it is like, prove it, God. Show, show me that you're real. And so we have this like heart of show me a sign, prove yourself to me. Now that can be the negative, I think, in that way. But I think there's this really good and healthy desire that we all have that's biblical to say, Lord, show me your glory, God. I want to see more of you, Lord. I desire to be with you. I love you, God. Show me your glorious presence in the way that, that Moses does, in the way we see in some other parts of Scripture. I wanted to read from Exodus 33. You can turn there or just listen. Exodus 33, and, and you see a verse here on the screen, but I'm going to read it in its fuller context. Verse 12, Exodus 33, 12. It says, one day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You've told me I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you. So remember Moses said, who will go with us, God? God says, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from, from behind, but my face will not be seen. Wow. 
That's an amazing story, right? Where Moses is just like, God, we need you with us. We need you on this journey that you've called us to do, but I don't want to go if you're not going to go with me, Lord. And so show me your glory. Show me your presence, God. Let me see more of you. Now, there's, there's other scriptures, Jeremiah 29, 13. Seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart, right? There's Philippians 3, uh, 8. It basically says, like, all is lost, all is rubbish, apart from knowing you, Jesus. It's like, nothing else matters. I just want to know you, Jesus. And then even Jesus himself says in John 17, 24, he says, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So it's something Jesus desires for us, right? That Jesus desires us to see the glory of God. And so I think that we can check ourselves. Like, am I trying to get God to prove himself to me? Or am I trying to get God to be like the little God I want or I've created for him to be? Or am I believing he's God, submitting to him, and then just saying, Lord, show me your glory, God. Let me see more of you. And that's, that's my heart. That's what I want for me. Kind of like when Moses is like, I want it for me and for them. And me and them, right? And, and me though, right? Like, you know, and it's like, I want that too. I want that for me and I want that for you. And so I even think about some of these moments that we have in the service where we say, hey, come forward, receive prayer to be, uh, let's like be on our knees before God or let's raise our hands before him. These kind of physical responses or, or cries out to him. Part of that is just because we want to have God with us and know that he's with us. And so Lord, show us your glory. Empower us then to go out from here and live each day for you. That's our heart. That's my heart for you. And so I want you to even consider, like, where are you in this? Lord, are you trying to get God to prove himself to you? Or do you just want to see more of his glorious presence in your life? But so often what gets in the way is this. We reject Jesus as the Lord of we, the whole world, for a Jesus that's Lord of me. This little Jesus we've created him to be, right? And that's what's going on with these people. It's kind of crazy what, like how, how this all then continues to go down. Verse 25. Okay, so remember, Jesus has said, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be the one that brings these promises from Isaiah 61. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled. They're kind of like, wait, what? This is Joseph's son. And he says, you, you want me to prove myself to you? And then he says this. Certainly... There were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And then another example. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him, forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built, and they intended to push him over the cliff. All right. So why do they want to kill Jesus? There's a lot of reasons, but they wanted to kill Jesus for saving the wrong people. 
Jesus, you're saving the wrong people. How can we do this as well in our lives? I think about, okay, a few other reasons they're upset. Okay, why are they upset? One, he claims to be Messiah. He's just a local kid, right? So he's claiming to be Messiah, but he lives there. But they didn't want to kill him yet. Okay, even though he had done this, they didn't want to kill him yet. They're, they're wanting a sign. They're wanting some proof. They don't necessarily want to kill him yet. One thing we do know is from Isaiah 61 is some people think it's because he deleted this one line. He deleted, there's, I mean, Isaiah 61 is long, but he deleted a line about today being the day of vengeance of our God. That one that was like so good for my metal song, right? I mean, it's like you need the vengeance one for the metal song. But like it's, but he doesn't say I'm bringing vengeance for God against the enemies of Israel. He doesn't include that part. And so they're like hearing that maybe and thinking like, oh, well, what do you mean? You're not gonna, you're not gonna get the vengeance against the Romans and the Syrians and the Phoenicians, the Sidonians, all these other people. We have to be careful sometimes with that because sometimes the way the New Testament quotes the Old Testament is it will quote a, a portion, but it's sort of like trying to imply that it's the whole thing. We need to be aware of that when we study the scriptures. However, in this case, it does seem like Jesus is selecting some specific portions for a reason. It could be that they're also mad that he's got words of grace towards people, towards all people, seemingly. But mostly, you get to the end here where he starts talking about Syrians and Sidonians. And he says, I didn't come, to, I didn't come and rescue all these people in Israel under the reign of the most evil king Ahab. It's in this time of Ahab. He's sort of comparing them even hey, you're kind of like the Israelites in the time of Ahab. And this is what they'd look back on their history as some of the dark periods of their, of their people. And he's like, you're kind of like them, but God came and rescued the Syrian, your enemy. God came and rescued the Sidonian, your enemy. God came for them. Guess what? I've come in this way for all people. He is the Lord of we, the Lord of everyone. And when he starts to say that, that's when they jump up. That's when they want to throw him off a cliff. But I think it's one of those D, all of the above sort of moments. It's all this that's leading them towards wanting to kill Jesus. Even just to, to show you, it was in 1 Kings 17 is where you have this story of Elijah, where then he comes and, and there's this famine in the land and he provides for this widow. And then it's in 2 Kings 5 where this guy Naaman, who's a Syrian with leprosy, is healed. But I want for us to really consider how do we do this kind of thing as well, right? It's easy to look down on the people of Nazareth, but how do we kind of think we have this sort of similar ethnocentrism maybe that these people of Israel had. Now they were the chosen people of God, so they've got a little more reason to feel ethnocentric, right, about how they are. They've been told we're the chosen people. We're the chosen people, and they are. They were, they are, and they still will be the chosen people of God. Now they're, <laughs> they're like seeing all of this through the lens, though, of their nation and their lives only, not that God came for everyone. When he comes for the enemies, they want to turn against him. Now, we have to be careful here. We kind of do some of this sort of stuff in America where we're like, we're the chosen people, right? You know, and so it's just like, we got to be careful about how we don't step into this sort of attitude where God has come for the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, right? It's for everyone. Jesus has come for everyone. And so we have to 
remember that and check ourselves and our motivations, reading the scripture through the lens of America rather than through the lens of, of God or Israel and all of these, like the actual places where this stuff happened. So that's a good check for us. It's also a good check for like, hey, I guess not everybody could be healed even then, right? Like, okay, in that time of that famine, not everybody was provided for with food. In the time of the, uh, where this guy Naaman has leprosy, it says there's lots of other people that had leprosy, but they weren't all healed. And trying to process through, okay, Lord, well, why, why do I not get healed? Or why did the person that I love not get healed? Or why did I not get provided for with what I needed in that time by you, God? Now we're gonna be talking about it. I don't wanna like go too long on that aspect because there's gonna be a lot of stories. Like we're going through Luke, we're going through every single part, right? Bit by bit, going through the whole thing. And there are a lot of healing stories. There's a lot of demons being cast out. There's a lot of Jesus providing for people in some way. And so we're gonna be kind of like taking this chunk by chunk through here. But it's important just to remember that the miracles of God are not to give you what you want. The miracles of God are to show that he is God and to show who he is, that Jesus is doing this to show he is Messiah. And so we remember that it is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom through both his words and his actions. We're literally gonna talk about it even more next week. And so we have to then submit. We submit to our God. No matter what you will do, Lord, we submit to you. He's a God who has power over the physical realm, over the supernatural realm, spiritual realms, everything. His power over it all. The very last verse, verse 30, it says, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. They're trying to throw him off a cliff, but he passes right through the crowd. I always sort of imagine this as like him sort of, you know, disappearing and just sort of like going through all these people in this like this incredible way. And it could just be that he has power over a rowdy mob and they would part like the Red Sea before him. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus has power over everything. And so we submit to his power. So I encourage us to check ourselves in this, to remind ourselves that God had a plan and God was fulfilling his plan. His plan was not for Jesus to die here. His plan was for, you know, Jesus came to die upon the cross. It wasn't to die to get thrown off a cliff. It's not just to die. It's to die in this specific way and time that Jesus had in mind, right? So they're, they're moving towards that. So this is not the time for Jesus to die. And so he moves through this. And so I want us to think about how do we respond to this today? How do we respond to this message and to even like just some of, of, of all of this about like desiring from God something, right? Whether that's healing, whether that's provision, whether that's for him to give us a sign or if that's for more of his glorious presence. And so I want us to think about um, what we, like where we are right now in this because I think there's gonna, be, there's gonna be two forms of response today. One response is to say, Lord, I have been trying to make you into the God of me, right? Into this God that I want you to be for me. And I need to just submit to you. I need to submit to you as God. 
And however that looks, it could, it could be really like extreme or it could be mild in some way. But no matter what it is, it needs, we need to have full submission, okay? Full submission to Jesus as Lord. And so we might need to kneel before him as our God. And then it could be, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm submitted. I'm submitted to you, Lord Jesus. And I don't need you to prove yourself to me, but my heart's desire and longing is, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glorious presence. And so maybe that's just like a standing and raising your hands. And so I want us to respond with two physical posture options today to this passage. To either kneel at your seat or somewhere else in the room, if you can turn around and face your seat if you want in a moment, and just kneel before him to submit to him as God, as the God of all, the God of the universe, the God of the entire world, not just for me. So I want to submit to you, Lord, on my knees. Or, you just, Lord, show me your glorious presence to stand and raise your hands. So in a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a couple more songs. And I think this passage, these words of Jesus demand a radical response. We submit to him, we cry out for more, or we're rejecting him. So check your heart. Where are you? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? The one who God himself came, lived a perfect life that none of us could live, and that who went willingly to the cross, died upon the cross, and on the third day rose again in victory and power, that he is really God. If you believe that, you are on your knees before him or you are hands raised. You're not arms folded and you're not apathetic. You are a radical response to radical promises from a radical God. So let's consider our response to him today. On our knees or standing up or even walking out. One, one of those options. Those are your options. Let's pray together as the worship team comes. Almighty God, I pray in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that you would show us your glory, Lord. Lord, that we would be a people that respond to you radically, that respond to you deeply, that respond to you honestly, vulnerably, Lord God. We bring our full and honest selves before you, God, and say, we need you. We love you. We believe in you. And so, Lord, we submit to you in this moment on our knees, and we need to work out some stuff of ways that we've tried to shape you into the God that we've wanted instead of the God you are. Or, Lord, we stand before you and we cry out, Lord, show us your glorious presence. I encourage you to begin to respond in that way now. And as you'd like, a couple people will be available at the prayer points throughout the morning as well.